Brothers and sisters, today is a special day for us as Christians. It is a holy day on our spiritual calendar. The day is known as Pentecost Sunday, and in today's message, I want to talk about the reason for the season. Uh, like many holidays, there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings. You know, Christmas, you know, like, oh, that's, uh, that's Santa Claus, right? No, 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 it's Jesus uh, in the manger. You know, Easter, it's the Easter bunnies. No, 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 it's resurrection, okay? You know, and Pentecost is one of those where, you know, is it Pentecost, isn't that like Pentecostals or Charismatics or like what, what is a Pentecost? Well, it's one of our, our high holy days. And so I want to talk about Pentecost. I've titled my message this morning, Down to Earth. Uh, and it's just a play on the popular idiom that we use when you're talking about someone who's, you know, like someone you could connect with, you know. You say, oh man, that guy's really down to earth. I, I feel like I could hang out with that person. They're down to earth. They're not uppity or whatever. And so I want to play on that popular idiom this, this morning and share with you about something literally that has come down to earth. On Pentecost Sunday, something, or I've said it twice now, you've got to hold me accountable, not something, but someone comes down to earth in a unique way. So as we talk about coming down to earth, Pentecost is a celebration of someone who has come down to the earth from the heavens. And that someone is the Holy Spirit. Today we are going to be doing what we call pneumatology. Follow me. Uh, ology is the study of. So you talk about biology, that is the study of bios, life. Okay. We talk about cardiology, that is the study of the cardia, which is the word for heart. Pneumatology is the study of ology, pneuma, which is a word for spirit. This morning we are going to be studying the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, on the holy day of Pentecost, someone was poured out on God's people, and that someone was and is the Holy Spirit. In a moment I will say more to you about some things pneumatological. That is to say, I'll share with you more about the Holy Spirit and who He is but first, let me draw your attention to your outline that was given to you this morning. And you'll find in the outline that there are various passages that I have given to you that give you direct references to Pentecost and or indirect passages that speak of this great holy day. I want you to notice here the first reference that is before us. It is a reference to the opening chapters of the Bible. The first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. In the very first book of the Bible, when you open the Bible, you, you, you get a verse in and you hit the second verse and you start reading. Pneumatology hits you from the very opening of the Bible. You start reading about the Holy Spirit. He is hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis 1-2. And as you continue reading Genesis in this beginning creation account in the Bible, we read of the Father creating the world as the Spirit hovers as, he, as, as creation is coming. You see the Spirit, you see the Father creating, and the Father creates by the power of His Word. In the Gospel of John, the Word is identified as God the Son. This is fitting for the Bible reveals to us that we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. In the opening of the Bible, you see the Spirit, you see the Father, you see the Word, the Son. One God in three persons. The Bible not only reveals who God is, but the Bible also reveals who we are. We are special creations made by God to image Him, to know Him, and to love Him. That said, as you continue in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, you see that His love was rejected by us. It is an account of unrequited love. 
Humanity rebels against God. Humanity made in the image of God turns to worship other images and turns their back on God. God being a gracious and loving God, uh, God being an all-knowing God, God being a providential and sovereign God, uh, has a plan to save humanity from this rebellion. And that plan involves this triune God. For you see, the Father is going to send the Son into the creation. The Son, who is eternal God with the Father, will become one of the members of the rebellion. That is to say, He'll become a full human. He will live among them. He will die at their hands as a sacrifice for their sins. And then the Son will ascend into the heavens, risen from the dead, and He will, on the day of Pentecost, send the Spirit into the world. Okay, so this is who God is. The one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what Pentecost is. The day when the Son sends the Spirit into the world as a part of this plan of rescuing members of a rebel army and, and taking those who have rejected His love and, 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 and pouring His love into them by the Spirit. So you have the passages in front of you. Now what I'm going to do in this message is I'm going to weave these passages together to make some generalized points about pneumatology and the day of Pentecost. Would you please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is found in the Second Testament, the New Testament, after the Hebrew Bible. And I want to begin by taking us into the book of Acts and, and seeing the account of Jesus ascending into heaven and then the Spirit coming out of heaven to His people. Now, the first point that I have uh, for your outlines is review, because I'm going to be picking up where we left off last week, so I want to do a little review in case you weren't here. Uh, the book of Acts is a part of a, a, a two-volume saga. The author of the book of Acts is the historical figure Luke, and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as a two-part series, a saga. The first volume, the Gospel of Luke, involves the life and ministry of Jesus. As Jesus uh, 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 concludes things, he's made his disciples, he's died on the cross for them, he's risen from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and he sends his disciples to go into the world and make disciples as he had modeled for them. The book of Acts overlaps with that by recounting the ascension of Jesus, the sending of the Spirit, and then we get to see what Jesus did in the Gospel of Luke, we get to see his disciples do that in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is like an origins account for the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I love origins account movies. I, I, I love seeing, you know, like, oh, this new movie comes out, and, and then they're going to give you the backstory on that little raccoon guy, and, you know, and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see it. It's going to be great. This is the origins account that gives us the background, the DNA of the church of Jesus Christ. Luke writes this account uh, like a historian, and that he is. He is a scholar. He's actually a trained physician, which explains why in the Gospel of Luke and also in Acts, we find technical medical language that he uses when he writes. Luke is, is like what you would think Sherlock Holmes would, would write like. He has that kind of uh, Sherlockian style of writing, great proficiency, attentiveness to observation, deduction, forensic science, and logical reasoning. Like a detective, Luke speaks of interviewing eyewitnesses. So draw your eyes at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until that the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he, he writes like Sherlock. He has a mind that is set on investigation. He's talking to those who, who were there. He's interviewing. He's comparing notes. He's correlating it all together. Their, their, their lives were, were changed. They had experienced the, the risen Christ. Uh, mind you, Luke isn't writing mere history. He's not writing mere apologetics. This isn't just a, an abstract defense of the faith that was given to them. He's also explaining to his readers the origins of the church. Uh, as a generation had passed, you know, you, you kind of go, hey, what is this? Or why do we do this? Or tell me about this. Luke is giving theology for the people of God to understand God and, and what's going on. Uh, we do this in, in families. You know, you go, hey, what, what, you know, I'll ask my dad about his dad and wait, where was he born again? And what did he do? And what did your dad's dad do? And, and you gather that information because it can be lost. And so you want to share that with the next generation. Luke is giving theology for the next generation to understand. And through this account, we're able to understand. So as we talk about Pentecost and go, what's Pentecost about? Thank God for Luke, because Luke unpacks it for us. And God's Word unpacks it for us. Speaking of God's Word, let's return to the text. Draw your eyes at verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to hook up the kingdom for Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And as he said these things, he was lifted up. And they were looking on the cloud and he's out of their sight and they're gazing intently into the sky and two men in white clothing stood beside them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This is an amazing text. It records the ascension of our Lord, which we studied last Sunday because it was Ascension Sunday, another holy day in our calendar. It, it records our, our risen Lord who conquered sin on the cross of Calvary, conquered death and the resurrection, and now ascends up into the heavens to pour out His Spirit to carry His church until He tarries when He returns. So this Sunday is a special day. It's Pentecost Sunday. It's tied to this historic day that we're going to read about in a moment in the second chapter of Acts when the, when the Spirit was first poured out when He, the Spirit, had come to the church. Uh, last Sunday, Ascension Sunday, you want to put these together. Ascension and the coming of the Spirit belong together. If you missed last Sunday, do go online and check it out. Uh, you can listen to today's message and totally track and, and follow and what have you, but you want to have Ascension in mind as you have Pentecost in mind. What Good Friday is to Easter, Ascension Sunday is to Pentecost Sunday. They go together. Without the death of Christ in Good Friday, there would be no body to rise on Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And so too, without the ascension of the Christ, there would be no outpouring of the Spirit. Recall in John 16, a passage that I showed you last week, this, this on the lips of our Lord, listen to our Lord speak, John 16, 7, 
I'll put it in front of you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, speaking of the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him, the Spirit, to you. So before Jesus ascended, He reminded His disciples of the ministry of the Spirit. And this is what we just read in Acts 1, didn't we? He, he gets them together and He reminds them of the ministry of the Spirit. They were asking eschatological questions about the kingdom of God and, and the fulfillment of the covenants to Israel. And, and he moves them from eschatology in Israelology to pneumatology. Let's talk about the Spirit. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 4. Look at it. Gathering them together. Wait for what the Father has promised. Verse 5. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not many days from now. Well, when, when the day had come, it was the day of Pentecost. And that's what we're celebrating today. The day when the Spirit was poured out on the people. They were there that day, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, now what does that mean, baptized in the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've uh, you know, seen water baptisms in the church or whatever. You go, is that, is that water baptism? No, no, it's not water baptism. This is spirit baptism. In the original text, Luke, Luke uses a, a really interesting word. Baptiste sesthe. Baptiste sesthe. And th this word is a verb. Okay, so when you go to the lexicon, the, the dictionary for a foreign language, and you, you want to find this word, you've got to look up the word baptizo. And when you look up the word baptizo, you, you'll see that it has a very simple definition. Baptizo just means putting something, other, putting something under a, a, a substance, like water, uh, or, or oil, or, or you, you put something, you immerse something, you plunge something into something, that's what we call uh, baptizo. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, the Hebrews had a different word, uh, because that's a Greek word, they would have used uh, the, the Jewish word, which is mikvah. Uh, even to this day in Jewish culture, uh, it is a culture and a religion that practices mikvah, or in the plural, mikvahot. Ceremonial washings. You, you mikvah, you baptizo, you go down into water, and water serves as a symbol in Jewish culture for cleansing. It serves as a symbol in Jewish culture for conversion. Uh, people would regularly undergo baptizo or mikvah as symbols of cleansing and symbols of conversion. Uh, Gentiles who were outside of the covenant of Israel, if they wanted to worship the God of Israel, they would go down to the river Jordan where they would be baptizoed. They would go into the water and come out of the water as a symbol that they were in union with God. Culturally, we use rings to symbolize when we are in covenant with someone in marriage. The ring isn't what makes me married. It is a symbol of it. So to mikvah, water mikvah, is just a symbol. A symbol that God has done something in me that I want to publicly proclaim. Baptizo, mikvah, water. Now there's something different though that is going to take place in this case because you're not going to be immersed in water. Jesus says, hey guys, you're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Not a substance, a person. You are going to be plunged into pneuma. So again, the word just means plunging, it means immersion. Additionally, in Jesus' day, it could be used metaphorically to speak of an experience. 
Uh, you know, we, we, we sometimes talk about, oh man, he really jumped into that or whatever. We use it colloquially to describe when someone is all in. You, you jumped in, you took the dive. That, that, that is to say that you're all in. Uh, you, you're not flighty, you're committed, you're all in. And so baptizo, mikvah, also carries that kind of metaphor. You're going to be baptized in the Spirit, you're going to be all in. You're, you're going to be in something, it's going to be incredible, and the thing that's going to be tying you together will be the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, the Apostle speaks of baptism, speaks of the Spirit, speaks of Christ. It is all about union with Christ. Look up here at this verse. Do you not know that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Baptism is identification. The death that Jesus died in baptism is symbolized as a death that is belonging to us. When He hung on the cross of Calvary, bleeding out for our, our sins, his, his death was received as our death in the court of God. And so for Christians, we have two baptisms. We have a baptism that involves identification. When you've been saved by God, you go through water baptism to picture it. It's simply putting a ring on it. Um, but, but you can't put a ring on what is not there. So water baptism is actually symbolizing spirit baptism, which is the precursor in that order. We've been saved by the Spirit, and so in water baptism, then we are picturing that. Um, this is a wonderful picture for us. It's a wonderful picture when we think of the Spirit uh, uh, being immersed into the Spirit, it, being, being all in, being identified with. The new covenant in Jesus' blood, a new covenant poured out by the Spirit, sent by the risen and ascended Lord. What an amazing work. Notice in Acts chapter 1, this, this is something new. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's something new. Now, uh, for, forgive me for a second. I, I want to do a quick uh, kind of grammar language lesson here and come back to this word, baptiste, seste. It is a verb. It is a verb. It is a second person plural verb. It is future and it is passive. Again, sorry in advance, just a quick English lesson. If you'll humor me, if not, you're stuck. So here we go. A verb. What is a verb? A verb is a word that describes an action, a state of being, right? A production of a result. That's what a verb is. That's how words that are verbs, that's what they do. They're describing the action, a state of being, production of a result. I said it's second person plural. What is second person plural? It, it, it's when you're speaking to a group of people. So in English, we have our, our, our uh, second person singular is you, and our proper second person plural is you. But if you're from the South, uh, like my family is, you say y'all. And a, a lot of people in our city say that too. So y'all would be the proper way of saying uh, this verb. So this, this is a y'all kind of a verb. This is, uh, this is describing an action that is happening to y'all. And when is it happening? Well, in the future. And we use the future verb tense when a writer is portraying an action or a state of being that is, hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen in the future. Okay, that's all, that all makes sense. You're tracking with me? Okay, now what is the passive? Uh, what is a passive verb? Well, it is the grammatical voice that signifies that the subject is being acted upon. I.e., that is, the subject is the receiver of the verbal action. 
A verb in the passive voice with God as the stated or implied agent is often referred to as the divine passive. Okay, now this is why this is important. Because what Jesus is describing that is going to be in the future, that's going to happen to them, all of them, y'all, he's saying that it's going to happen passively. That is to say that y'all are going to be acted upon. By who? <laughs> the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to do something to you. What's he going to do? He's going to baptize you guys. The Spirit is going to come and baptize you guys. Whoa. Now, we think a lot when we, we, we talk about pneumatology and the Spirit, and you say, what's the Spirit going to do? We think a lot in terms of the Spirit and salvation, and rightly so. Without the Spirit, no, no one would be saved. The Spirit applies the work of Christ to the lost sinner that is in rebellion against God. And so what we, what we talk about, though, when we're talking about the Spirit and salvation, we use the word regeneration, a second point on your outline. You, you have to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. As I described, humanity rebelled against the giver of life. That brought death. That brought dysfunction. God, being rich in His mercy and love, has a plan with the Father sending the Son, and the Son taking the debt that we owed, that we could not pay, and He pays it for us on the cross. His payment takes hold. He's risen from the dead. And the Spirit then is applying this work to those who are lost. In John chapter 3, Jesus is very clear about the work of the Spirit. And while Pentecost is something new, the Spirit saving sinners isn't new. That's the way everyone was saved from the very beginning of the fall. The Spirit, Jesus said in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Him in the night and, 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 and said, what, what, what must you do to be saved? He spoke of the passive work of the Spirit bringing new life upon subjects. Jesus chided Nicodemus. He said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Again, it's been this way since the beginning in the fall. This is, this is all throughout the Hebrew Bible. You need the Spirit to regenerate you, which is a word that describes something coming back to life again. This teaching of salvation in the Spirit isn't new. Jesus' disciples already knew the Spirit is tied to our salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, look at this text, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly in Christ Jesus our Savior. We were acted upon, passive. The Spirit came and gave us new life. Being born again, as Jesus described it. The light is turned on, and it isn't turned on by us. It's not by our deeds, which is why we describe salvation as a gift. He gave it to us. It wasn't our doing. Uh, th this is good news, because if it was our doing, then we would have to maintain it. And surely we would all lose our salvation. But it's a gift that is given. And more than a gift that, that we hold in our hands, this gift isn't something we hold in our hands. It's been done to us so that we will never lose this. You can't undo the work of regeneration. So then, the Spirit and salvation. Yes. If you're saved, it's because the Spirit, Titus 3, uh, John 3, the Spirit gave you new life. Okay, but what Jesus is describing in Pentecost, this is something new. They're already saved. They already have the Spirit who's been at work in the disciples, and they've been saved, but now there's something new happening. What is it? By the Spirit, 
Christ is building a remnant for the earth. A, a remnant is a people that have been left in a particular area to do a specific work. And that is what the church has been called to do. And this is where the new thing that comes in Pentecost comes in. What exactly is new about the work of the Spirit in Pentecost? Well, with the body of Christ, Christ's physical body ascending into heaven, and God's providence and His plan of redemption, the physical body of Christ descends into heaven. Now in Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down, follow me, God is making a new body of Christ as a remnant in the earth. A spiritual body, the church, that is to image His physical body, that, that, that died, that is resurrected, that is ascended. We are the body of Christ. Look up here. Keep your Bibles open to Acts. Look up here at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, verse 11, excuse me, through 13. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. In the book of Acts, Luke records how the Spirit, someone, the Spirit, He, is poured out for the first time to form the body of Christ. What is the baptism of the Spirit? It is, it is the body of Christ. It is how the Spirit is applying the work of Christ to make us one body together, spiritually. Recall that in Acts chapter 1, they were asking questions about Israel and the kingdom and the last days. But Jesus told them, hang on, the times and the epochs that the Father has fixed, that's going to happen. The king will bring his kingdom, the covenants to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. All that's going to happen. We're not doing Israelology here. We're doing pneumatology and ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the word for church. Something new is going to happen. What is it? The church. The church isn't in the Hebrew Bible. The, the, the church is a, is a new thing that, that God is doing as a part of his plan of redemption. And to form that new thing, he is going to send someone to make that something. The someone is the Spirit. The something is the church. Poured out on Pentecost, after Christ's ascension, the church is born. Look at how the Apostle Paul speaks of the ascension and the Spirit and the body of Christ in, in another text. Let me lay this next to 1 Corinthians 12. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body, one Spirit. You recall with one hope. In your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all and through all and in all. But to each of you, each one of us, a grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a captive of hosts and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does this mean except that he who descended into the lower parts of the earth, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The one who descended, this is the Son leaving heaven to come to earth, which we celebrate in Christmas. The Son has descended to the lowest parts of the earth. He lived among the lowly. He dies on the cross of Calvary. He's descended into the earth only to ascend. And in his ascension, he fills his people by the Spirit. Paul speaks of the incarnation of the Son descending to the earth. He speaks of the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit. This is all working together. The plan of this 
amazing God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. And this plan happens, the pouring out, the filling in Acts chapter 2. So hopefully you still have Acts in front of you. Look at chapter 2. Draw your eyes at the text. Let's look at the opening verses here of chapter 2. It begins, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. But suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent and rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost. Spirit comes. Jesus has been talking to his disciples about this. I'm going to go. I'm going to send another. It's going to be bomb.com. It's going to be great. It's better that I go. I'm going to send him. He's going to do amazing things. It's going to be great. Now it comes. He comes. And they're filled with him. We saw in Ephesians 4, it, it, it's still in front of you, so keep Acts in front of you. And look at Ephesians 4. Jesus ascended so that he might do what? So that he might, what does it say? Fill all things. Here in Acts 2, verse 4, we just read that they were all filled. All of them. This filling, this baptizing of the Spirit was for all. All of y'all, second person plural, who are in Christ. I emphasize this because there is a bad teaching that is out there that says some Christians are baptized by the Spirit and there are some Christians who are not. And so you have a kind of spiritual hierarchy. There's these Spirit-baptized Christians and they, they do everything right. They, you know, they, they read their Bibles and they, they're just, everything that comes off their mouth, it just sounds holy. And then there's these Christians over here who don't have the Holy Spirit. You know, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they're saved. You know, God so loved the world, he saved those guys. But they didn't get the Spirit yet. And this teaching will go something like this, that, you know, so what you need is you got to come to church uh, they'll often have services. They'll call them afterglows or something like that. And you got to come and you got you got to work and you and and like you know and then seek God for the baptism of the Spirit. You know that uh, look the disciples, Pastor Matt, you already said they were already saved. You see, but they weren't baptized in the Spirit yet. So see, you can have baptized Spirit-powered Christians. And it's just regular Christians who aren't baptized yet. Isn't, I mean, in Acts 1, they were saved, but they weren't baptized. In Acts 2, they get baptized. So what we need to do is we need to go to our upper room, and we need to pray and wait for the Spirit to fall. Um, this uh, teaching, technically, is what's known as subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit. The teaching that there are some Christians who are Spirit-baptized and those who are not. And I would submit that that's a dangerous doctrine uh, and it's not biblical. Uh, the problem with it is, one, you're missing that this is a unique moment in history. This is not a, a repeated event. Uh, this is the book of Acts, a descriptive narrative that's recording what did happen, not what should happen. Jesus told those guys to go wait in the upper room for the Spirit to come. He didn't tell us to do that, because after what happens in the book of Acts... All who are regenerated by the Spirit are also simultaneously baptized in the Spirit. It happens upon conversion. This, however, is the first time He, the Spirit, was poured out. So prior to this moment, this baptism of the Spirit had never occurred. I showed you. It's a future tense. 
Now, the filling of the Spirit had occurred. When you're reading the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, you'll see that people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Genesis 41-38, Joseph is filled with the Spirit. The artists who build the tabernacle are, are filled with the Spirit. Numbers 27-18, Joshua is filled with the Spirit. In the book of Judges, we see judges filled with the Spirit. You think of Samson, filled with the Spirit. You think of Israelite kings like Saul and David are said to be filled by the Spirit. You think of David in the Psalms, he cries out, Don't take your Spirit from me. There's a work of the filling of the Spirit. The work of the filling of the Spirit is not the work of salvation. It is a work of empowerment. And so fillings are done repeatedly where we seek the work of the Spirit to fill us for fresh works and, and for walking in holiness and so on and so forth. The point being is that filling happened, but not baptism prior to Pentecost. That said, notice here in Acts that filling and baptism are used interchangeably. What did Jesus say in Acts 1? You will be baptized in the Spirit. What does Luke say in Acts 2? They were filled with the Spirit. So this shows us that the terms filling of the Spirit and baptizing of the Spirit are, are terms that are uh, associated with concepts that overlap. And yet at the same extent, while they overlap, there is distinction. Similarly, regeneration is distinct. Is distinct. Follow me. Hang on. Follow me. Regeneration or being born again is the work of the Spirit in saving the person, bringing them repentance and faith and a new heart. Filling is the work of the Spirit in those who have been regenerated to empower them for good works and holiness. Now, baptism of the Spirit is distinct in those and yet overlapping in this age simultaneously. The baptism is the work of the Spirit in joining the saved person to the body of Christ. What makes us a church is that we've all been baptized in the Spirit. What makes us saved is that we've all been regenerated in the Spirit. And in this age, God doesn't save people and not attach them to His body. Regeneration and baptism of the Spirit occur simultaneously. If, if, you, if you got saved today, you're like, that, this boring sermon isn't saving anyone, Pastor Matt. I know, it's, it's the work of God, right? So if you get saved today, it'll be because the Spirit regenerated you, gave you life, and simultaneously brought you into the body of Christ. This, however, Pentecost, what we're celebrating today, was the first time that it had ever happened. So it was subsequent the first time it happened, Okay, if we had time to survey the book of Acts, I, I could show you in the book of Acts, saints who are being repeatedly filled with the Spirit. Like Paul, uh, or Peter is filled with the Spirit here in Acts 2. Acts 4, 8, he's said to be filled with the Spirit again. The Apostle Paul commands believers to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18. And that tells us that the filling of the Spirit is a synergistic work between humanity and God, between the redeemed and the Redeemer. Synergistic, sin means, means with uh, Aragos is a word for, for work, the, a synergistic. It's a work that we partner with God in. We have to seek God to be filled by the Spirit. We come to Him, we plead with Him, Oh, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. David, do not take Your Spirit from me. That's a, that's a work that we partner with God in that ultimately the Spirit is going to accomplish and He uses our petitioning, our laboring, and, and so on and so forth. But not regeneration. And not baptism. That's not synergistic. It's monergistic. Mana, one. God is the one who does that alone by His grace and by His power. In Acts chapter 2, this is the first time, this is the first time that they're filled, but it won't be the last. 
However, it is the first time and the only time they are baptized in the Spirit. Prior to this, they had been regenerated, never before baptized. They had been filled with the Spirit, but not like this. Not like this. Having said that, this is where a, a, you know, the confusion comes in. And as a teacher in Christ's church, that's my job. I've got to clean up the mess and try to help God's people understand this stuff. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm trying to you know, show people because this subsequent idea messes with a lot of people. I meet Christians who are down and defeated. They, they look at other Christians and they think, oh, I just don't have the Holy Spirit like them or whatever. You say, no, no. Look, we are all in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 9, look at this verse, that, that, that if you don't have the Spirit, you, do, you don't belong to God. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, you don't belong to Him. There, there's not people who have the Spirit and people who don't have the Spirit. Earlier I gave the language lesson. The you is a, is a second person plural we saw in that text and also here in Romans 8, 9. Y'all have the Spirit. Get, get it. You, you have the Spirit, okay? You need to understand that. You, you have the Spirit. But this work of, of baptism is a unique work, and that brings us back to that unique work. Let's talk about what that unique work is doing. And that leads us to point four on your outline, reconciliation. To reconcile is to have a restored relationship. A relationship that was busted up and broken, uh, two parties that aren't getting along with each other, and all of a sudden they come together and now they, they are restored. Uh, in, in, in salvation, we are restored. We're reconciled to God. Vertically, I'm, I'm restored in my relationship with God, but it doesn't just stop with the vertical. Reconciliation involves a horizontal. I'm reconciled to God, and I'm reconciled to my fellow man. And that fellow man is manifest in Christ's church where you have a people that are reconciled to one another. So the, a key thing that is missed in the subsequent baptism stuff is is that this isn't about an individual experience of you going to an afterglow and you praying in your pillow and crying and trying to speak in tongues or doing whatever to get the Spirit. This isn't an individual experience. This is a group experience. God was doing a group, a y'all kind of thing to show them their new corporate identity. Look at Acts chapter 2. After this whole Pentecost thing happens, when He, the Spirit, comes... Peter gets up and he starts preaching his little heart out. Uh, you, you look at the text, look at, look at verse uh, 14. Peter's preaching his little heart out. It says, Acts 2.14, look at the text. But Peter, st taking a stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and he declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. This is what the prophet uh, spoke of Joel, verse 17, 18, 19, 20. He, he, he quotes this prophecy. It shall be in the last days, God says. I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams. And even on the slaves, men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they will prophesy. I, I, I will, I will, I will. Pour out my spirit on everyone, on his, on his people, not like all of humanity, but his, his chosen people. And this becomes their corporate identity. Sons and daughters are one. 
Young and old are one. Slave and free are one. Earlier I showed you passage with Paul when he talks about the Spirit. There's neither, there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. We're all one. All the things that divide in the culture are broken down. And the prophecy of Joel foresaw that day. And in Acts chapter 2, they're getting a, a, a sip of the cup of that day that ultimately will be realized when Christ returns. But the church is picturing it now. What are we picturing? A corporate identity in the Spirit. As you continue reading in the book of Acts, Luke makes this point by documenting a, a, a Pentecost that happens to various ethnic groups. So we have Pentecost here in Acts 2 that happens to the Jewish people. And then in Acts chapter 8, there's not time to survey, but you have a Samaritan Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out on a different ethnic group, the Samaritans. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have a, another Pentecost. It's a Gentile Pentecost where the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. So you have kind of three Pentecosts there. There's another Pentecost I want to show you in Acts 19. So if you would turn from Acts uh, uh, chapter 2 and find your way to the 19th chapter. All of this to say it's a unique time in history. The Spirit is poured out on the Jewish people, the Samaritan people, the Gentile people. It's subsequent to them because this is the inauguration of a new thing, the new body of Christ. What happens on Pentecost, though, is, is showing, as the Spirit is poured out, that all these different ethnic groups are being made one. And so as they see each group receiving the Spirit, they're, they're given a, a vivid manifestation with tongues, fire, the, the rushing winds and everything. Like, this is happening. This is really happening. This is a, a, a new revelation to the people. It is worth noting that during the time of Jesus, the Jewish people, when they celebrated Pentecost, they associated it with the giving of the law of Moses on Sinai, which, if you recall from Exodus, involved a fiery the theophany with God and, and Moses and fire and winds. And so here in Acts, where you see rushing winds and, and fire, it's invoking that biblical image of Exodus and theophany. In Acts 2, we, we, we're reading in Acts 2 and we see tongues coming and, 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 and people start hearing foreign languages and you go, what is going on here? Uh, this is, if you know your Hebrew Bible well, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 11, if you look up here, you see in Genesis 11 they said, come let us build for ourselves. Come let us reach up into heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. In Genesis 11, where languages are confused divinely by God, humanity says, we're going to build this. We're going to go up. In Acts 2, you have a reversal. The languages are brought back together, not by man building up, but by God coming down. Acts, we, 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 we see a reversal of it. The book of Acts is, 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 is filled with people who are saying, we've been brought together. Our languages are coming together. And with one voice, we are saying, God is good. And God alone is good. And His name is the name that we lift on high, not our own. Look at the differences here. Look up here. The differences between Pentecost and, and, and Babel. You have these... Uh, it's, a, it's a glaring juxtaposition in the text. You have a, a, a homogeneous people in Babel that get, that, that, that get confused. You have a gathered heterogeneous people. A people who want to make their name great in Babel, but a people in Acts who are going to make Jesus' name great. God comes down in judgment in Babel, but He comes down in blessing in Pentecost. God confused them in His judgment. 
And now God is unifying them with the pouring out of the Spirit. The people are being made one. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 12. We saw this in Ephesians 4. One body. So the subsequent thing, as we read about it in the book of Acts, is to show the people. The Jewish people received the Spirit. The Samaritans received the Spirit. The Gentiles received the Spirit. We are all drinking from the same cup. So we're all brothers and sisters. I ask you to turn to Acts 19. Draw your eyes at verse 1. There's another group who has a subsequent experience. Again, it's not normative or prescriptive. It's just describing it so that the people would know they were all being made one. Acts 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, we actually read about him in our reading of Scripture today, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we haven't even heard whether there's a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what were you baptized then? They said, well, into John's baptism. Speaking of John the baptizer, Jordan River. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That's, that's Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. The point of these accounts in the book of Acts, again, it's the origins account of the church, is to show the church there's one body. There's not separate bodies. There's not uh, special baptized Christians and these other Christians who don't have the Spirit. That is not what the text is teaching. John's disciples were another kind of group that were running around. They, had, they hadn't heard that the Messiah had come. They had heard John's... They, they, didn't even, they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. These guys clearly aren't saved. In that, in that regard, they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. They don't even know who Jesus is. So they respond as Jesus has preached to them. They're baptized in the name of Jesus, and then they receive the Spirit. This uh, often gets used by the subsequent folks to say, see, you can be saved and not have the Spirit. You go, those guys aren't saved. That's not what the text is doing, and that's not what Acts is about. Acts is showing us God pulling, monergistically pulling people to Himself and pouring His Spirit on them. A final point for us to note on your outline here, let's move to the word rooted. Notice that when Pentecost was used in the book of Acts, the first Pentecost, it says on the day of Pentecost, everyone knew what it was. Luke doesn't have to explain the holiday because everyone knows what Pentecost is. So I've been jabbering up here about Pentecost and pneumatology and whatever. What, what is all of this rooted in? I'm glad you asked. It, it comes from the Jewish culture. It comes from, literally, from a Greek word that is used to describe a Jewish holiday. The Greek word, I'll put it in front of you, it is Pentecoste. Uh, and the Greeks would use this word Pentecoste, and, and it literally means this, 50th. Uh, why 50? Well, if you know the roots of the holiday, you'll know why 50. In Jewish culture and the Hebrew Bible, they have a liturgical calendar. The people of God had a calendar that had holidays in it. Uh, you, you know, like Rosh Hashanah uh, is the head of the new year, Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement. There's Sukkot, there's, there's Feast of Booths, there's, there's uh, you know, there's uh, Purim, uh, which, you know, or Lots, as it's sometimes called, that is found in the book of Esther. Uh, the Jewish people have all these holidays. Central in them is the celebration of Passover, or Pesach. To understand Pentecost, it, it, it's just a part of the Jewish uh, holiday calendar, um, but to understand Pentecost more narrowly, it's really good to have Passover in mind. Recall what I said Pentecost means. It means 50th. 
We call it 50th because Pentecost is 50 days after Pesach, or Passover. So Passover, of course, celebrates how God miraculously did this abolitionary work through the prophet Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God pours out a series of plagues, and on the tenth one uh, that breaks the chains of their slavery and leads to their liberation, on the tenth plague, the Israelites were instructed to take innocent lambs and sacrifice them and take the blood of that innocent lamb and apply the blood to the posts of their doors. There was going to be an angel of death who would come over the land and those homes that were not marked by the blood of the innocent lamb on the posts of their doors, they would have judgment. Death would come. Death would come. It's called Passover because when the angel of death sees the blood on the post of the home, the angel passed over. That's why they call it Passover. The people of God, after this horrific bloody night where, where, where slave masters were crippled and people were set free, on this bloody and dark night, the people were rescued and God told them, don't you ever forget what happened. Don't forget this. Don't forget the blood of an innocent lamb that, that allowed for judgment to be passed over for you in your home. The Israelites leave the land. They go out into the wilderness. He tells them, don't forget. I don't want you to forget what happened. So in Leviticus 23, we read this in our public reading of Scripture today, they were told to count 49 days from Passover. Every day you count. Every day you count. The counting of these days is known as Sephirat HaOmer, the counting of the Omer. Let me put Leviticus in front of you, just one verse, Leviticus 23, 15. From the day after the Sabbath, the Passover, the day that you bring the sheaf, which is Omer in Hebrew, the, the, the wave offering, count seven full weeks. Count off 50 days, Pentecost day, to the day after the seventh Sabbath. It is worth noting that an Omer is a unit of measure that is used in biblical times, okay? Uh, in the sacrificial system of Moses, along with the animal sacrifices that, that are bloody, and it's to, to remind us that sin has made a bloody mess and that innocence covers guilt, all of these things that are pointing ultimately to Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who will be the Lamb of God and die in our place. In addition to animal sacrifice, there's also plant sacrifice. Um, in this case, it involved a, a freshly harvested grain. So as the grain crops are coming up, this is the good stuff. This is the first fruits. You're supposed to take the first fruits that come and, and, and take an omer of them, a korban omer, a sheaf offering, and you bring it to the temple. A Passover and Pentecost are, in terms of holidays, they're what's known as the shalash relagim. They're holidays that you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to the temple in. Some holidays we stay at home. Some holidays, you still got to go to work. Some holidays, you travel somewhere. These are travel holidays. So you get your Omer, your first, the first of your, your plant crop, and you bring it to the temple. And as you're traveling to the temple, there's not cars and planes and stuff. As you're traveling to the temple and you're looking at that grain, you're like, ooh, I could have some of that right now. No, no, no. It's for the sacrifice. You, 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 you bring it, and every day as you're traveling, you count down the Omer every day. 
And on the 50th day, you go to the temple and the priest takes your omer and waves it into the air. It's a, a wave offering. It's, it's tossed into the air. Uh, beyond the holidays, the, the wave offering is used in the Hebrew Bible for lepers who are cleansed. It's used as a symbol of having peace with God. And so as it's waved in the air, we're being reminded of what Jesus has done for us. He has cleansed us like lepers. He's cleansed us. What else did I say it symbolized? Peace. He has given us peace with His Father by being our Passover lamb. His blood was applied and judgment passes over us. Praise be to God. So as we count down to Pentecost, Sephirat HaOmer, you're reflecting on liberation, you're reflecting on salvation, you're reflecting on the temple where God dwells and being reminded of paradise lost where humanity once dwelled with God in this perfect temple and we have now this earthly temple that's pointing to a new thing that's going to happen. And in Pentecost, as the Spirit is poured out, the church is made the temple of God. So they used to have to pilgrimage to go to the temple, and now Pentecost is birthing a new temple. The ascended Lord goes to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly temple, and then He ushers us into that and makes us His temple. Look at Ephesians 2. I'll put it in front of you. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And get this. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus also. We think of Him dying on the cross for us and reconciling us and all this. In the ascension, He spiritually took us up with Him so that we're seated with Him in heavenly places. How does that work? We're His temple. The temple in the Old Covenant was a porthole of the heavens to the earth, and now the church is that porthole. Jesus ascends to heaven, he presents the church as the first fruits of the harvest. We are Christ's Omer people. He took the first fruits, brings them into heaven. You know, in the Jewish culture, the book of Ruth is traditionally read on Pentecost in the, in the Jewish community. Uh, the book of Ruth, if you don't know it, it's a story, uh, a history of a Gentile Moabite woman named Ruth who is welcomed into the covenant community. It's, it's a story of being welcomed in and being reconciled to God. And this is exactly what the Spirit does in Pentecost for us. In fact, this Moabite woman, Ruth, becomes the great-grandmother of King David and thus a matriarch in the line of Jesus. Ruth's blood is in the veins of our risen Lord. And that blood was spilled for us on the cross of Calvary so that judgment would be passed over us. And he rose... And during his resurrection appearances, the Jewish people would have been counting down these days. So you think about this, like you know from reading the Bible. So he, he rises up from the dead, and like Luke said, he, he presented himself for like 40 days to many people, and Luke interviewed those eyewitnesses. He go, what, what was he doing in those days? They were, counting, they were counting the Omer every day. They were doing the countdown, according to Leviticus, every day. And you're going, with the countdown, you're going... Okay, Pentecost is coming, Pentecost is coming, Pentecost is coming. And then Jesus gathers his disciples together and he starts telling them, Pentecost is coming, the Spirit's going to be poured out. Pentecost is not only about the Spirit, but also about the Son. As well, Pentecost is about the Father. You see, Pentecost was a holiday that is all tied to God and renewal and the Father. Scholars note that in Jewish tradition, Pentecost retained its connection with the annual harvest but it also became a covenant renewal festival and a celebration of God in giving the law, 
By the middle century B.C., Pentecost became a covenant renewal celebration. God is in covenant with us, church. He's renewing us, church. When we are faithless, He is faithful, church. Did you get beat up this week? Did you sin this week? Do you have burdens from this week or just life in general? Hear of the God who renews His covenant with you and in Pentecost, He is proclaiming that to you. In practice, what does this look like for us? We've seen the passages, the points. Let me conclude with practice. It means the Spirit has given us new life and a new identity. We, 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 talked, about, we talked about the Spirit giving us new life and regeneration. And in baptism, He gives us new identity, that corporate identity that we belong. Have you felt lonely this week? You felt alone. Like I said, you felt beat up, you sinned, you feel guilty, you feel isolation. We come to hear the gospel that breaks all of that down. In Christ, you belong. I was was reading a, a, a psychologist this week, and let me quote from it. A sense of belonging is crucial to our life satisfaction, happiness, mental and physical health, even longevity. It gives us a sense of purpose and meaning. Research has shown that a loss of belonging has been associated with stress, illness, uh, uh, decreased well-being, and depression. And in the face of that, Pentecost says to you, you belong. Acts 2, the Jews receive the Spirit. Acts 8, the Samaritans receive the Spirit. Acts 10, the Gentiles receive the Spirit. Acts 19, John's disciples receive the Spirit. Henceforth, all who are regenerated by the Spirit belong. You are a part of the body of Christ. Romans 8.14 For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong. We're children of God. Pentecost is not an abstract pneumatological lesson for you. It's a real thing in practice for you to say today, I belong. Young and old acts, the Spirit is poured out. Male and female acts, the Spirit is poured out. Slave and free, the Spirit is poured out. All the divisions, all the divides. No, no, here you belong. Secondly, in practice, we see that the Spirit gives us new union and new power. He has joined us with Christ. So we're seated in heavenly places in Christ through union with Christ by the Spirit. We read in Acts, he said, you will have power when the Spirit comes. Again, there's not two kinds of Christians, one who have the Spirit, one who don't. We all have access to Him, and in Him we have power. There's outlets around the room where you can plug in things. right? The power is behind the outlet. You plug in and automatically you, you get that power. And that power is acted upon the thing that is plugged into it. So too, by the Spirit, you have access to this, this, this power and this, and this life. And so this calls us out of any self-loathing or, or wallowing. or that You know, I don't belong. No, we already covered that. You belong. Well, I don't have the power. No, you have the power by the Spirit. He calls you. He beckons you. He will fill you. He'll fill you again and again and again because He's regenerated you and baptized you. And He will be with you, giving you power. Finally, the Spirit gives us reassurance that God is in control of all things. All those Jewish festivals 
and how they all like work together and all the sacrifices and the whole history of God's people and how it's all like pointing to Christ and Christ just so happens to die on Passover and just so happens to pour out the Spirit on Pentecost and just so happens to, in John's Gospel, be there when Hanukkah hits. And he's, he's using all of that to go, look, look how meticulously in control of things I am. That's the antithesis of us. We are not in control. I hate to break it to you. You're not in control. What, one of my pet peeves that really gets under my skin is when I, I sit down to eat something or whatever, and then you take the fork and you go to, and it falls right off. You, go, ah, you know, and I had the bite just perfect and it fell off. I can't even feed myself. I'm not in control. I'm a baby. I, there's stuff I try to do all the time and it doesn't work. There's something at the house that needs to get fixed. It's going to take five Home Depot runs and three YouTubes. I'm not in control. But I belong to a God who is in control. So whatever you're going through, however you've been beaten down, whatever you've come in the door with this morning, hear, hear this word that Pentecost is a reminder that God controls the calendar. And that those of you who are in Him, He is working out a plan. A final passage that we'll close on before we come to the Lord's table this morning is Romans chapter 8. Hear this, church. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that's Omer talk, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. I'm getting old. Cholesterol's getting high. The blood, blood pressure is not good. We groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons. What's that? The redemption of our bodies. Resurrection for us. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see, and with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose, to those He foreknew He predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Pentecost. The giving of the Omer and the, the countdown for this, the presenting of the first fruits. As Christ ascends into heaven, he presents the first fruits, the first fruits of redemption. This entails that there is a harvest. He is harvesting souls around the world. He is harvesting souls in the city of Los Angeles. And he has called us to go and to proclaim the loving God who rescues those who don't deserve it and don't want it. Isn't he good to save us? from ourselves to save us from Him and the judgment we deserve? As we come to the communion table, we're, we're reminded of this. It's Passover. There's a cup that has some juice in it that kind of looks like blood. It reminds us of a lamb being sacrificed. There's a little cracker. It reminds us of the body of this lamb. It's a common table. It reminds us that we're a family, so we all get to come to the table together. There's no better than, lesser than, more spiritual, less spiritual. We're all leveled. None of us deserve to be here. 
but the King of Kings gave you an invitation to come to his table. Right? Like if, if some foreign king invited you to come and have a meal with him, you'd feel so honored. Like, why me? The King of Kings has invited you to this table. As we celebrate, let's sing. As we celebrate, let's be reminded that by the Spirit we have been baptized and made one. And as we come to the table and we proclaim what He has done for us, may the Spirit move and fill us afresh this day. Father, we come to You. We pray that You would move as we come to the table. We offer songs to You for You alone are worthy of our praise. We thank You for Your Word and the ability for us just to just to have time to not be in a rush and to study Your Word and consider what this day means. Lord, may we never go through the motions with You, but always press into You that we would know uh, what You've done for us and how it fits in with everything. Um, and Lord, for the things that uh, maybe went over heads or, or wasn't understood, or, Lord, we're just so thankful that none of that even matters because Your Spirit is at work in us to conform us to the image of Your Son. We are so thankful, Father, that You sent the Son, and we are so thankful to You, Lord Jesus, that You lived the life that we did not live, and You paid the debt that You did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. We come to the table now to picture that debt being paid, a cup, a cup that was poured out. And so, Lord, we, we thank You for that, and we praise You. In the name of Jesus, amen.